what I've done. These first couple of slides are the same. It's a refresher for you. But if you have not been here, we've always got guests, especially at the end of Thanksgiving. If you've not been here, this helps. Revelation is something that needs to be opened up. It's a treasure chest. It's got four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's got the scroll with seven seals. It's got the dragon and the woman on the dragon. It's got the seven trumpets. It's got all sorts of bowls of wrath, actually seven of them. It's got all sorts of numbers that are in it, that are used in all sorts of funny ways. And so what we've got to do is figure out how to unlock the book of Revelation. I promise you, if you just sit and read the book of Revelation without any commentary, without any help, even if you've figured it all out before, you're still going to sit there and scratch your head and say, man, I'm really not sure I get this. Because it's a very difficult book to read for us. So I think the keys to unlocking it for us are centered around two ideas. First of all, that we understand the type of literature that's being written here that we're reading. Because to us, it's unlike anything we've read. Oh, it's got a little bit to do maybe with science fiction. You know, it's got kind of, you know, or fantasy, dragons and what have you. But it doesn't really read like our type of literature. And yet, if you go back in history to the time of Revelation, several centuries before and even several centuries afterwards, you see a lot of this type of literature. It's often called apocalyptic. That's a word scholars use. The word comes from a Greek word, apocalypsis. Apocalypsis in the Greek is translated, you ready for this? It's going to be really hard to remember. Revelation. The revelation is the apocalypsis in the Greek. It's the revelation or the apocalypsis. So this is apocalyptic literature. It's a literature of revelation, of revealing, of an opening up, of an unlocking. And as such, it's very rich in symbolism. Much of the symbolism we understand if we study it in context of Scripture because it's symbolism from the Old Testament. The Old Testament itself has some of the earliest apocalyptic literature. Daniel is considered, parts of Daniel, apocalyptic. Parts of Ezekiel, apocalyptic. Parts of Zechariah, apocalyptic. You can read all sorts of other uh, um, writings that are apocalyptic that we still have um, uh, uh, available today. They have not been lost to history. There were a lot in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. So there's a whole wealth of this material that scholars can study. And there's a whole area of study in specifically this type of literature. And it's it's populated with believers. It's populated with unbelievers. Just like you would uh, uh, study Shakespeare, perhaps, or some other area of literature or interest, because this was a whole genre of literature. So we want to understand Revelation, but we understand it as truly a vision from God to John that was written and secured for the church for all ages as part of Holy Scripture, as part of God's communication to us. It's a message for us. And so that's what we've got, and that's what we're going to look at together here. So now, with that in mind, some of the most 
pronounced symbolism that, that we need to remember, and so I remind us of this, are the symbols associated with numbers. Numbers were used in that day for a lot more than math. Numbers had a symbolic meaning as well. The number three was considered a spiritual number, a sacred number. The number three, uh, uh, the number four, an earthly number. The number seven is three plus four equals seven. So it's a full and complete number. Now, this is um, important. So take, for example, the number three. God is described in Revelation as holy, holy, holy. You see that? You've got one, two, three. It's just written in a spiritual sense, emphasizing the spiritual, the divine, the sacred nature of God. He's holy, holy, holy. He's the one who, is, who was, who is, who is to come. Separates out into threes also. Jesus is called the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of kings. And so you've got, again, a description. One, two, and three. And this you see over and over and over in the book as you read through it. And, and it's, it's, it jumps out at you, especially if you've got the blessing of reading it in the Greek where it's structured so clearly to, to illustrate those points. Um, so you've got three. Uh-oh, why do we have this slide twice? Let's move it through. Sorry, my mistake. Boom, 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 boom. There. So we have three, a sacred number. Four is an earthly number. Number. So you'll read, for example, about the four angels. They stand at the four corners of the earth, controlling the four winds of the earth. You have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So you've got four, a number as well. An earthly number. Now, if you take everything that's spiritual and everything that's earthly and you add them together, what do you have? You have everything. Seven. A full and complete number. Now, we'll get to the point here, by the way, lots of plays off of this. We'll see a play off of seven where you cut it in half. Three and a half is a very significant number in Revelation. It's not everything. It's... it's Everything for a period. It's half of it. You'll see the significance. And, and, and well, I get carried away. Okay, so we have seven churches. It starts out with a letter to seven different churches. You've got the seven spirits to represent the full spirit of God. You've got the seven stars that are held by the, the Lord. You've, he walks, Jesus walks in the midst of the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches. The light to the dark world. Um, you've got seven beatitudes laced throughout the book. Pastor Avery this morning referenced one of the earliest one or the earliest one. Blessed are the one who reads aloud the words of these book of this book and who does them. That's a beatitude, a blessing. There are seven of them as you work through the entire book. There are seven bowls. There are seven trumpets. There are seven, 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 sevens is a complete number. So you've got seven. Now, if instead of adding three and four together, we multiply them, what do we get? Twelve. Also a full and complete number. It's just another way to do it. So the, the, we'll read when we get to the end, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem has twelve gates. And the twelve gates have 
12 pearls on them. And on them are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they are built upon the 12 foundations of the 12 apostles. And there are 12 angels who have 12 stars. And there are 12 fruits on the tree of the uh, of fruit of life. And sometimes you take the 12s, the complete number, and you can add them together. So you've got the complete of the old covenant with Israel, the complete of the new covenant, the apostles, or however you want to say it, but 24 thrones to represent a completeness of both the old and the new. You can multiply 12 times 12 and put a thousand on it as a kicker. They'd add thousands for things or hundreds to make it a kicker, okay? You get 144,000. It's the fullness upon the fullness of those who are sealed and redeemed for the Lord. And so you've got all of these numbers working within the process of the book. Now, set the numbers in your brain. I'll keep them on the overhead. But then let's look at the structure of the book for a moment. Now, there are some fantastic Bible scholars who read the book of Revelation in what is called a linear fashion. In other words, like we would write history today. It starts with chapter 1, verse 1, and it proceeds all the way down. So it starts with the time it's written, and it proceeds in a line-to-line fashion to the end of days. And so you just read it, and, and it's chronological order. And what happens, happens in chronological order, and you try to understand it and integrate it within the rest of biblical teaching. And so the time it's written, it's written to the seven churches, though with a message that would apply to us today. And then it's written, and it goes to the end of days with the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. Not a great picture for that, unless you get real close, but sorry, trust me, that's the new Jerusalem. Um, according to one guy, and um, or gal, and and so it, it's written from the earth for the early seven churches that are identified, but with a message that applies to everyone, with an explanation through chronology to the end of times, with the idea I'm sure that that that's still a lesson that would apply to the early churches, even though it's not going to take place for we know now at least two thousand years. Okay, so that's one way to read it. And so you've got the tribulation structure of the chapters that Pastor Avery was talking about this morning in the some of this middle ground between those things. And 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 you read it, you, you understand it and you try to fit it in. And Max Bowman has has a masterful chart where he's worked real hard with some other folks, I think, to plug all of this stuff in. And I, I've got to attach it to one of the lessons because Everyone should have a copy of the chart. And I'll try and remember to do that next week or maybe make some and hand them out independent. But, but you know, this is a linear read. It is a very, very accepted, scholastic, recognized way to read Revelation. It's not the one that, that I've written up because it's not the one I read it by. Though, obviously, there's not really any different. No, not really any. There is no difference in the theology from the way I read it, from the way it's read by people who read it linearly. The theology is the same. 
which is why there's a, a certain set of freedom for me to teach it to you the way I understand it. So the way I understand it and, and the way I've written it up is not um, a linear fashion, but it's what's called parallelism. And it's also a very well-accepted, scholastic, uh, uh, informed way to read it. Uh, it's not something I came up with. It's just uh, uh, my understanding, uh, having read and studied through this stuff. So what does it mean by parallel? Well, the book of Revelation can be divided into sections. Would you care to guess how many sections it seems to norm logically fall into? Seven! Surprise, surprise, surprise. So there are seven sections... And instead of reading it as one solid timeline from the early church to the end of days, this says that these seven sections each repeat the whole timeline. They each tell the same story, but with a different perspective. It's what you would find, for example, in Hebrew poetry, where there's a parallel structure, and the second phrase will modify the first phrase. It says the same thing, but with a different focus, a different emphasis, and a little different rub to the message. Now, this I equate to an onion. This is the onion reading. And by that, I don't mean that it makes it smells. And I don't mean it makes you cry. I mean that it's got the layers of an onion. So each each time you read it, it seems to be a little bit more fully defining the end days in each section. But as you look at it, the core, the first section is one through three, chapters one through three. And then the second section, four through seven, tell much the same story. It's the same cycle. And then you've got another cycle of eight through 11 that tell you the same thing. Another one of 12 through 14, another one of 15 through 16, another one of 17 through 19, and then the seventh and final cycle, 20 through 22. And, and so this is the way that, that the materials are written by and large. And this is the way I want to talk about it today, parallel. Now, I think most scholars recognize a good deal of the symbolism and imagery in Revelation comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel. But I would suggest to you it's not only the imagery and not only the symbolism, but in Daniel we see very much the same parallel structure. So Daniel has a set of visions. In Daniel chapter 2, that time period envisioned in Daniel chapter 2 is also envisioned in, whoops, in, well, Daniel, I just lost it all. Where did it go? There we go. Daniel chapter 2 is envisioned in Daniel chapter 7, is envisioned in Daniel chapter 8, 9, and 11. Five different times the same historical period is prophetically talked about. You've got Babylon, the fall of Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the rising of, of Alexander the Great in Macedonia, and, and it'll be four beasts, or it'll be two beasts, or it'll be depending upon the vision. But that same time period is talked about over and over and over again in five successive visions. And that's the way I see Revelation unfolding as well. So you've got seven sections that repeat this same time frame, same time eras, but has a different emphasis. 
And this, for lack of a better way of saying it, I'm calling the gospel age as the time period that is represented here. The gospel age begins with the coming of Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. The incarnation, the life of Christ on earth, his death, burial, and resurrection began the last days or the gospel age, biblically speaking. And in this gospel age, we live now up until the time of the second coming when Jesus comes again. And, and, and in the framework of that, we live in this gospel age and that cycle from the incarnation or, or uh, uh, incarnation, death, burial, resurrection of Christ to judgment and the second coming, that cycle and what happens to the church in the process is repeated over and over and over in the book of Revelation. And so, for example, Revelations chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 1, John has the vision. And in the vision, Jesus is walking among the lampstands. He is amidst the church. Jesus is the one who's true and faithful, who has come to earth. And the gospel age is an age where Jesus walks within his church. And you have the letters to the churches telling those churches, the seven who are specific churches, but also as seven represent the church of all age, the whole gospel age. Admonitions, instructions, encouragement, warning. Because it's concerned, those letters are concerned about the holiness of the church with the promise that if the church doesn't get right, God will come in judgment on the church. Judgment will begin with the house of the Lord. And so the first cycle is one that really emphasizes the need for the church in the gospel age to be holy. And that's a message for the time of John. That's a message for the time of us. And that's a message that the church should be heeding every year between John and us and every year between now and the time the Lord returns. The Lord's church is to be a holy church. We're to take seriously how we live, what we do, how we follow the Lord, how we, we engage our life and our community. Holiness is important. That's so much the message of Pastor Avery today. That's why I'm saying we may read the book in a different approach, but we come to the same conclusions about how it affects you and me. So um, that's, whoops, get back up there. Gospel age, sorry, this could be uh, tedious. If I've made this mistake throughout the whole PowerPoint, we're going to be repeating that a lot. So next section, four through seven. This is where the seals are opened. Nope, 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 no, not yet. This is where the seals are there, and they want to open the seals. But it starts out with nobody's worthy to open. And John's upset until they declare, John, so don't worry. There's one who's worthy, the lamb who was slain. And so we go back to the fact that Jesus Christ incarnate, the initiator of the gospel age, is the one who's worthy to open the seals of the gospel age. 
Nobody but Jesus Messiah is able to introduce the gospel age. Nobody but the crucified lamb is able to open up the future for the church. There would be no church. No seal would be opened. There would be no persecuting the saints. There would be no martyrdom. There would be no fellowship. There's nothing in the gospel age without the Lamb of God slain. Only He is worthy to open the seals and proclaim the gospel age. Nobody else is. It's impossible. And yet, because we have Him, He's able to do it. And as those seals are opened, and the four horsemen ride forth, the first horseman is Jesus, by my understanding. The only time white is used in Revelation is a reference to God, Jesus, and the saints. Nobody else. And that white horseman, dressed in white, who rides forth, that is Jesus. Because it was the precursor that says, as you understand all of the gospel age and the tribulations and the 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 the, the problems that, that are going to happen to the believers in the church as, and, and in the world, as you understand all of that, we believers understand Jesus Christ rode out first. And he's already a conqueror. So for the believers, we see the tribulation and we know. We know we are conquerors through him. The saints are secured. And when the church, the church gets martyred and saints get killed, whether it happened in the first century or it's happening now, it happens in North Korea. The church is persecuted in China. The church is persecuted in the Middle East. ISIS has no trouble beheading Christians. They have chased the Christians out of Iraq. They have chased the Christians out of ISIS-held Syria. There are places in this world where the church is still being martyred. There is great tribulation ongoing right now for believers in Christ in places around this earth. And, and, and the saints are secured in all of that. The martyrs go to the throne of God. And it's all explained there. With the end of that section having the stars fall down and the moon turns to blood and it's the end of the age. And so from my understanding of the book, this is a time or a description for the church, the believing church to understand as saints, you know, cycle one, make yourselves or get holy. God makes us holy, but do it. Cycle two, know that in the midst of all of the persecution and everything else, our destiny is secure. The Lord has hold of his saints. And it may sting and it may be horrible and there are terrible tragedies that take place. But at least we know that Jesus has already ridden out in victory. And we win because he has won. So with that, we go to the next cycle. And the next cycle, like another layer of the onion, it starts out with with the, uh, these are the seven trumpets, and it starts out with the warning of Jesus himself coming, the incarnation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And you work through that cycle, and you work through those trumpets, and these are warnings not for the church. These trumpets are warning the earth. There are, I, I have not spent as much time discussing atheism and atheists and talking with them and debating them and doing everything in the last year as I have in the last week and a half. 
But you know one of the most compelling arguments that the atheists use? If there's a loving God, why does bad stuff happen on earth? And the message of Revelation is, it's a warning to you. Don't say there is no God because this bad stuff's happening. Instead say, God, where are you? I need your help because this bad stuff's happening. This is happening because we live in a broken world that is marred by sin, where there are wicked and evil people and evil forces at work, and even the elements of nature are broken. There's disease in our body. And we live in a time where it should draw us in warning to find the Lord. And there are times of tribulation. And and there are times where people are saying today, kill me now, please. This life, I can't live it anymore. And those are the people who need to hear the warning. The trumpets sound in warning. Their Old Testament warnings. Boy, don't the people of Jericho wish they'd heard the warnings of the trumpets while they were sounded walking for seven days around their city. Trumpets are warnings. And the warning to the world is during this gospel age, judgment is coming. And the world itself shows you that. And you need to repent and you need to get right with God. Because only the saints are secure. And if you read through Revelation, okay, I gotta get to, to today's text. Um, at the end of this cycle, Revelation, uh, uh, seven, the warnings, we, there we go. Um, at the end, automatic focus, get it a little higher. And get down there. It's kind of a yellow book. Sorry. It's not yet. All right. So at the end of this, the seventh angel blows his trumpet. There are seven trumpets, okay? There are loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. See, this is the end of the cycle. So now we're reading about the end of time. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, they fall on their faces and they worship God, the Almighty, who is and who was. What's missing there? Is to come. Do you know why it's missing? Because this is describing the end. He's come. See? So that's why this is a cycle. This is the end of that cycle. This is the end of days. It's not who it was and is and is to come. Now it's who is and who was, but he has come. He has taken his great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Time for the dead to be judged, rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, small and great, destroying destroyers of the earth. God's temple in heavens opened, the ark of his covenant seen within his temple. There are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, heavy hail. These are the ends of the age. And if we go back to the PowerPoint, it ends that cycle. The ark of the covenant comes down, that cycle is over. Now we start up with the next cycle. 12 through 14. 
And it starts out with the incarnation of Christ. So we continue, if we go back to the text, and a great sign appeared in heaven. And the way this reads in the Greek, you can see it's another cycle. It's, it's a fresh start. And, 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 and a great sign appears in heaven. So we've got another vision here. A woman clothed with, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, where in the Bible has there ever been a vision of the sun and the moon and 12 stars? Anybody? Joseph. Joseph has, he's the 12th star, the other 11 and the sun and the moon bow down to him. This is the old covenant. This is Israel. She was pregnant. So this is a woman who comes forth from Israel. She's pregnant, crying out in birth pains, the agony of giving birth. I can't relate to that, but my wife could. Another sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns on his head, on his head seven diadems. His tail sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven. They cast them, he casts them to the earth. The dragon stands before the woman about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for three and a half years, 1,260 days, time, times, and a half time, 42 months. All of those are phrases used in Revelation. All right, now. Here's what we have here, I believe. The woman's clothed with the sun, with the moon, a crown of seven stars. This isn't simply Mary, but Mary would be part of it. This is the the promised people of God. The promise started with Abraham. Actually, in a way, the promise started with Adam. From the seed of woman would come one who would bruise the head. And from that time on, Satan has tried to destroy the prophetic promise of God in Jesus Christ. Think about it. Adam and Eve, they have Cain and Abel with the promise that from her offspring will come one who redeems. What happens? Cain kills Abel and Cain is cast out under a curse. Has the promise of God been thwarted? Did Satan win? No. Seth, she gives birth to another. You can keep following the fight. Satan managed to get almost all of humanity so far beyond redemption that God has no choice but to wipe out the earth. Does he destroy all of humanity? No. Noah is righteous before the God, the Lord. And you just continue through. Oh, he tries to keep Israel enslaved in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler of his day. Are the people enslaved? Are they unable to fulfill their prophetic promise? Does Israel not get its promised land? No. God defeats Pharaoh. What about the go through the line of David? And now the prophetic words coming through the line of David. And the kings after David are wicked and they're horrible. And they try to destroy 
uh, Queen Athaliah tries to destroy all of the offspring. But one little baby is hidden because the promise of God is not going to be thwarted. And then finally, you work your way up to the gospel story itself. And Jesus is born. And Satan, through Herod, sends the armies in to kill every child under the age of two. A weeping and a wailing is heard in Ramah. Rachel crying out for her children. Is Jesus destroyed? No. Jesus' mission is fulfilled. And Jesus ascends to the Father in victory. And the gospel age begins. And the gospel age is defined as basically, we're living in the wilderness, guys. Not for a whole seven years. Seven years is where we spend eternity. This is half of that. This is just the time on earth. 1,260 days. We're nourished by God. He takes care of us. But that's what happened. Now look, a war arose in heaven. And we're understanding, as part of this vision, we get a glimpse, a little bit of what was going on. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon. The Greek word for dragon is dragon. (laughs) The Hebrew word is Leviathan. So when you're reading your Old Testament, you read those passages about the Leviathan. You know what it is. The dragon, the Leviathan, and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There's no place for them in heaven. Who defeated him? Jesus. When? On the cross. The great dragon's thrown down. The ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, deceiver of the whole world, is thrown down to the earth. His angels are thrown down with him. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Does Satan have any ability to accuse any child of God anymore? No. Why? Penalty's been paid. It's already been done. Jesus has won. Penalty's been paid. Every accusation, you could say they're all true. Doesn't matter. We paid the penalty. Talk to me about today. They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. He knows his time is short. He knows he's lost. So why is he going to make life misery here? Because misery loves company. He's evil. He's wicked. He wants retribution. He wants to spite God. He's in the death throes, though. He's been defeated. But that's the age in which we live. So you look at it, and it keeps going, and and, and let's just take a, a little segue here. Um, this, is the, this is the same cycle, but this time the cycle is not emphasizing Jesus and the church is called a holiness like the first cycle, 
or the security of the saints in the midst of persecution and martyrdom, which is the second cycle, or all of the travesties happening in the world and the philipsis, the Greek for tribulations, the, the tribulations that are happening that should warn people. That's not happening here either. The emphasis on this aspect of the gospel age is that there's a spiritual war going on. That there really is a battle going on between good and evil. So here we see a beast rising out of the sea. Are you all able to see that? Is that too small? Let's see if I can make that a little better. Let's reveal the beast for who he is. No hiding. All right. Is that there? Thank you. Um, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. It's got ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems, blasphemous names on his heads. The beast I saw was like a leopard, feet like a bear, mouth like a lion. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, if you read Daniel, this plugs straight into Daniel's visions. These symbolisms come straight out of Daniel. Daniel sees four beasts. The beasts of Daniel have a leopard, a bear, a lion, and a human. So here, John's combined all four beasts into one. But they're the beasts of Daniel. Daniel's beasts were kingdoms. And these are combined into one because John's not telling us it's going to be this kingdom and then this kingdom and this kingdom and this kingdom, which is what Daniel was doing. He's saying all of them. Government. Government is a, can, can be and will be used during the gospel age. Government can and will be used as a tool of Satan. That's what it says. Now, I want to tell you, we're blessed more than any country I know. And we continue to fight for our country not to be a government so used. But you go back to North Korea, you go to China, you go to any number of, of governments. You can go to Rome at the time. And they have great authority. Now, if Satan's going to use the governments to persecute the church... And to do his wickedness. It's not just the governments that he'll use. Look at, there's another beast. You have the beast rising out of the sea. And then you have, whoops, there we go, a second beast. This one comes out of the earth. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. But it spoke like a dragon. Looked like a lamb. Spoke like a dragon, Leviathan, Satan. If government can be the arm of Satan, the first beast, this is the mind of Satan. These are the deceptive religions and philosophies and ideas that seduce and woo humanity into the lies of the dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Mortal wounds. Governments come and governments go. But during the gospel age, they'll still rise up and fight against the Lord's.
It performed great signs, made fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Oh, the things you can find in fake religion and fake philosophy and hollow intellectualism. I say hollow because if intellectualism is not infused with the God who made the intellect, it's hollow. You take hollow intellectualism and you can do all sorts of wonderful things. But you're speaking the language of the dragon. Now, this continues to go on and I'm running out of time. I've got five minutes and I want my points for home. But I'll just say this. As you work through this gospel age with these beasts and we recognize the problems that can be with government, the tribulation at the hands of government, the deceptive, destructive power of fake intellectualism, false religions, feel-good philosophies that all have the appearance of the Lamb and the voice of the dragon. But yet in the midst, as we get to the end of the cycle and the end of days and the judgment, Look and behold, on Mount Zion stood the real Lamb. With him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. By the way, I did not cover the mark of the beast. Sorry. Let's go. We're running out of time. Okay. Um, but we have, to, we have to look at this. And if we run a little, I'll figure this out next week. Um, Okay, it allows to give... So here we've got all this false religion. It causes all, small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Whoa, I'm not doing good. Y'all yell at me when I mess up. This calls for wisdom. Calculate the number of the beast. It's the number of a man. His number is 666. Now... We hit a time and an age, John says, in the gospel age, where you want to be economically prosperous, you want to be successful, you want to buy and sell, you want to, you want to succeed in this world, you need to give in. You'll find much more success with this false ideology, with this false philosophy, with this fake intellectualism. That's how you'll really succeed. What is the perfect, complete, whole number? Seven. Focus. Seven. 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 Three of them. Let's make it spiritually complete. Spiritually. All three sevens. Spiritually complete. Perfect. Whole. That's what we all desire to be. Now, if you want something to look like the Lamb, but it can't be the Lamb, you want it to look like a full number. Six is an evil number. It's an evil number in lots of apocalyptic literature because it gives the guise of being seven, but it's not. It's short. It's short of what's complete. It's short of what's perfect. It's short of what's whole. It is the imperfect. It is the number of man. Now, I'd love to tell you that there's going to be some chip that they're going to put on your forehead. 
in the end days? There may be. I don't know. I just don't think that that's necessarily what's being talked about here. This is in the gospel age. And the bottom line is, is there are lots of ideologies and there are lots of feel-good philosophies and there are lots of do-it-yourself programs that you can be told will make you be all that you need to be, will give you the joy of life, the satisfaction in life, will help you be accomplished. You'll be able to buy, sell, real estate like that. Yeah, I've got the program. I can tell you everything you need to know to be successful. Did you know in London, England, you can go to a bookstore and there are more books in the self-help section than in the religion section? Because those are the books that will tell you how to be all you need to be. Wrong. They'll get you to a six. But a six is not a seven. They will not make you complete. They will not make you whole. They will not make you perfect. They are... They, they look like a lamb, but they talk like a dragon. But the assurance is, and I've got one minute left. Um, we'll go to points for home right after this. The assurance is, as this cycle comes to an end, there we go, that on Mount Zion stands the lamb and 144,000 who have his name written on their foreheads. I am not my own. I belong to him. I don't have a fake philosophy. I don't have a hollow words. I don't have empty wisdom. I don't have some fake intellectualism that tells me where I am and where I've been and where I'm going. And I don't have worldly solutions to the problems of my heart. I have the blood of the lamb. Sound like harpists playing on their harps. They're singing a new song before them. No one could learn the song except those who've been redeemed from the earth. This is who we are. We're the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie in our mouth. We're blameless. Fallen is Babylon the great. And all of the nations will drink the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality. And the rest of it goes into the passage from Joel. It goes into the passage from the song. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored. And that's what we have. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. And seated on the clouds, one of the Son of Man with a crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. And he says, come, the hour to reap. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. And they pulled the clusters from the vine and the grapes that were ripe. And the great winepress of the wrath of God was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress. That's the glory. That's what's coming. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, we'll finish this up. This cycle, the emphasis is the spiritual war that's going on in the gospel age. And the promise is the sickle will come. And those in the Lamb will stand while the others will be trampled upon. So our key takeaways. I'm going to open my eyes to the battle. By the way, these three takeaways could be from Pastor Avery this morning just as much as me. This is why I'm saying how we read this is not the issue when we come to the same conclusions. I'm going to open my eyes to the fact there's a spiritual battle going on. I'm going to seek the truth of God. I don't want any fake lamb. I want the real thing. 
and I'm going to stand on and I'm going to stand for the truth of God in my life, longing for the day when the redeemed are in the presence of the Lamb. And I'm excited to have you join me and we'll pick this up next week. Can I pray over you? And I'll do it. We'll leave. Lord, I do offer a prayer of blessing over all who hear the words of your book. And Father, I pray that you will enrich and edify us with the promised victory of Jesus Christ who secures us in the midst of any trial or tribulation we face, will face, or have faced. And I pray you'll instill that encouragement, my brothers and sisters. For the sake of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.